The viewpoints expressed on Night Fright are not necessarily those of the host, the staff, the sponsors, or the affiliate stations. Tonight's program may contain graphic themes or images. Viewer discretion is advised. It is now. It wasn't 10 minutes ago, but it is now. Okay, okay. We fly by the seat of our pants, Alex. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> if I was wearing any, it would be even better. <laughs> Showtime. Welcome to the show, folks. I'm Brent Holland, and welcome to Night Fright. It is snowy out there tonight, here in Kingston anyways. It's a beautiful, beautiful Christmas night. I am so ready for spring. You have no idea. To help us celebrate the coming Christmas season, Ali Sadatin is here. He is an amazing guy, actually, folks. He's, uh, he's looked at the Bible, and he's uh, looked at the prophecies. He's tied in the prophecies of Christ with the Bible, Book of Revelations, the Old Testament as well. So get the coffee going, get the tea going, get that beverage of choice going, folks, tonight, because this is the one where you're going to want to settle back with the fireplace in the corner or on your TV, whatever works. Open up the curtains, look at the snow coming down, and just relax as we take you through a beautiful, beautiful Christmas celebration tonight with Ali. Ali, salam, chitori. Khuba merci. How are you, Brad? Khuba merci. That's uh, Persian, folks, just to let you know. Ali, uh, it's been quite a while since we've seen you, but... I'm so glad you're rejoining us tonight. I wanted to ask you, Ali, can you tell us a little bit about where the star originated from, the star of Bethlehem, and what you feel that is? Um, when it comes to the Magi, who were renowned astronomers, uh, for instance, uh, the, when you look at the Persian New Year, uh, which is on the first day of spring, which is a Zoroastrian tradition that goes back to the Magi. Apparently, the calculation is very complex to determine exactly at what second, what minute, that equinox of the spring happens, which marks the Persian New Year, because no two orbits of the Earth around the Sun are identical, and it requires some elaborate math, and the Magi were able to pull that math off. So they were astronomers from the Medo-Persian uh, Empire, a competing empire to the Roman world, by the way, and you know, they um, followed this star. Uh, what was this star? Well, um, traditionally, uh, the first explanation provided was that it somehow was the North Star, the great North Star, and it was manipulated uh, by the divine hand to, to be a guiding light to them. 
then there was uh, uh, some some examination into the Chinese astrological records, which are the oldest and most complete. And looking back into 2,000 years, uh, there's been kind of an elaborate explanation of the sky around that time and what may have been uh, the star they followed. And um, then there is this very interesting idea. Uh, we've all heard of the Zodiac. And the Zodiac is this um, non-Christian, uh, if you will, idea, non-biblical idea. But a lot of us don't realize that actually uh, the Hebrews also had an understanding of the Zodiac. It was called the Meseroth. And we were told that the heavens uh, speak of the glory of the Most High. Um, and the tale is that long before writing started, in the days uh, as far back as the first of the agricultural men, the first of the farmers, Adam, um, you know, God pointed into the stars and explained to him uh, through the images that he could conjure up uh, the history, the, where the story was going. So the Virgo represents, you know, the virgin. Uh, the Leo uh, represents the line of Judah, who is the Messiah. And so the stars, the zodiac was originally here to tell the story of what eventually became, you know, the macro tale of the Bible. So looking at it that way, people will say, okay, you know, when, when Jupiter orbits in a certain way and it appears inside of the womb of the Virgo, oh, that's a sign, a child is to be born. And so the Magi may have understood the stars and the zodiac story as, as being the story of the Bible and understood that, okay, it is time for the virgin to have child because somehow the constellation of Virgo is aligned in that direction. These are all ideas that, you know, has, have brought us to, to the 20th century. Um, and suddenly we have the appearance of the UFO phenomenon, this, this mass appearance of UFO sightings. And J. Allen Hynek, who is one of the original researchers and begins to, you know, look into it, um, uh, he's hired by the American government. It's called Project Blue Book. Uh, it starts in 1948. Uh, the Air Force sets up an office uh, because there's so many Americans who are coming forward with these sightings. And they hire an astronomer, Alan Hynek, and they say to him, look, investigate all these reports on the Air Force's dime and dismiss all the ones that can be explained through natural phenomenon and give us the rest and we'll, you know, look deeper into it, report to the Congress, and Congress will report to the American people uh, concerning this phenomenon. And if you look at the literature, for instance, between 1968 and 1970 in the American press, UFOs are talked about publicly by people who are uh, in great places of authority. It's normal. Everyone's talking about, well, the Air Force is an official investigation. And Alan Hynek discovers that 3% of the sightings uh, cannot be explained by natural phenomenon, 3%. And um, a lot of the draw, you know, photography that people uh, send in to Alan Hynek, I've used in my documentary, UFOs, Angels, and Gods, because it was before Photoshop, it was before uh, digital manipulation, and it was well recorded inside of this scientific inquiry. It, it, it provides an honest, incredible record uh, into the UFO phenomenon, these pictures. And what Alan Hynek discovered was that these sightings fell into clear categories. And the first category, which he called uh, you know, daylight disks, but the second category he, he called nightlights. 
And night lights were these bright uh, lights in the night sky that looked like shining stars. And often uh, the story that it was associated with them was actually that of follow the leader, uh, where someone would be out uh, in, in some country road. Um, and uh, Benny and Barney Hill, uh, that's a very famous story, uh, the first story of recorded abductions. And there's one story in Brazil that some might consider the first one, but that is definitely in North America the story that opened the door to the idea that, hey, some people claim to be abducted, that Benny and Barney Hill story is a follow the leader story. They do talk about a bright night, bright light in the night sky that they're following. And suddenly, looking at the UFO phenomenon uh, and looking at the story of flight in ancient literature, uh, a connection was made in the mind of many thinkers. And the story of the Magi is, is now thought about in some schools of thought. Uh, uh, in a new way, uh, in, in light of this reality, if people are today following these bright lights in the sky, perhaps they were following them 2,000 years ago as well. It's very controversial, um, and the association is not you know, necessarily to make uh, the, the, uh, what the Magi's followed into, into aliens. Like, you know, aliens came here and they somehow decided to lead this group of Medo-Persians uh, all the way to Bethlehem and somehow tied into, you know, uh, biblical writings. No, this, the, the integrity of the characters of the story is not uh, challenged. It is still angels that we are talking about. It's just the nature of how they interact with the physical universe that is perhaps appreciated in, a new, in, in the light of the 20th century, in the light of the UFO phenomenon. We now have the Hubble telescope and we see how vast the heavens are and that, you know, we travel in the ocean of water between the continents, uh, and perhaps uh, the angels of God travel in the ocean of space um, with their heavenly chariots, and so, which the Bible talks about, by the way. And so the idea suddenly is, well, wait a second, stars don't behave the way that this particular star behaves. They don't come and then disappear, reappear, and then stand still on top of a single location uh, as though like X marks the spot, and you know, for these guys to follow it uh, all the way from uh, basically modern-day Iran to modern-day Israel. Uh, this uh, is interesting. It's an interesting story, and, and perhaps uh, it was uh, what, what in the 20th century we would call a, a UFO sighting. It's an amazing story, Ali, because this trip of the Magi just didn't take a single day. How far back does the prophecy go? that the Mashiach, the Messiah, would be born. And how do we know that Jesus was that actual person that they were prophesizing back in the Torah, if you will, back in the Bible? The kind of two questions, how far do they go? Uh, and maybe, you know, who are the Magi exactly? How do they fit in the story? Uh, and then how do we know that the Yeshua or Jesus was the Messiah? Well, the last question first, how do we know that Jesus was the Messiah? When you look at the New Testament, um, it records three years of his life and his birth and, and one small story from his childhood. And you think, well, why? Why only three years of his life? Why only his birth? Why these specific things? Why not more? Well, because what the New Testament is interested in recording is only the aspects of this man's life, which are apparently the fulfillment of the law and prophecies of the Old Testament. All that was spoken about the Messiah in the Old Testament 
um, how he fulfills the law and all the prophecies spoken about him come to fruition in the life of this man. And here is a document the New Testament proposes that records the fulfillment of these prophecies. So the entirety of, of the, the Gospels are focused very heavily on proving that this man is the Messiah. Why? Well, because he's born in, in the way that the Messiah was to be born, from a woman of marital age, but who is not married, an Alma. We know in English we say a virgin because in the biblical thinking it's assumed that such a person would be a virgin, uh, that he would be born you know, in the city of Bethlehem as uh, the scribes uh, of Israel pointed to Herod, the king in the story of the Magi, where Herod turns around and, and says, where is this Messiah supposed to be born? And they look into the books and they say, well, Bethlehem. There are many, many other things uh, that he does that fulfill the Old Testament. For instance, the Passover is an interesting story where he's crucified on a specific day marked in the calendar that God apparently sets up through Moses and God appoints seven uh, days on this calendar uh, that are going to have some significance. We don't know what. And suddenly uh, the Messiah shows up and he is killed on the Passover on the day that uh, a very important ritual of deliverance uh, happens going back to the tale of the Exodus, where the Jewish people are delivered um, and somehow the killing of this lamb and the putting of its blood on their doors is connected to that deliverance story. And so he is crucified on that Passover, is in the tomb during the appointed day of unleavened bread and rises on the appointed day of first fruits. So three of the seven appointed days come to life. Um, now, the amount of circumstances that have to click together to make uh, this, this death and resurrection happen on these days is huge. So his birth, the circumstances of his death, um, and how the world was changed. If you look back into the ancient world, what do you see? You see a sea of polytheism from ancient Mesopotamia to the times of Rome and Greece. People worship the gods, whether it be in Persia, India, China, even in Mesoamerica here. And of course, in Rome and, and, and before them uh, in the Greek and Hellenistic Empire. And then you have this tiny colony of the Roman Empire, Israel, which is the only monotheistic nation in the world going back to Abraham. And it meant that their deity had no equal, had no comparable. He was a completely separate from the created order. So here you have this man who appears on the scene. Never leaves, you know, 100 uh, kilometers his birthplace. He only speaks for three years. He's then arrested, trialed, and executed as a common criminal in a colony of the Roman Empire. However, the world is never the same afterwards. Uh, the teachings uh, pour out of Israel into the Roman world. Uh, by the 4th century, it, there are so many Romans who have adopted this, uh, that the you know the emperor himself becomes supposedly a Christian, and uh, Christianity changes the Roman world um, uh, without a uh, an army coming out of Israel and putting a gun to the head of anybody saying you know convert. Uh, in fact, they're arrested, they're killed because the Roman citizens who become Christians now refuse to worship and sacrifice to the gods who were considered to be very real in the Roman Empire and the backbone of imperial power. So they're weakening uh, the emperor, and the, so they, they, they are ordered uh, to be killed by the god Apollo, especially the sun god, uh, and, and that's actually recorded in my documentary. So suddenly you see this uh, paradigm shift in the Roman Empire where we 
suddenly as, as humans shift from thousands of years of polytheism out of the blue to this new paradigm of monotheism, um, there's a consciousness shift to the point where today we no longer say, is there one God or many gods? We say, is there a God or is there no God? This has become the paradigm. And it's because of the teachings of this man. So the effects that he has on the world is profound. Um, when St. Jerome or, you know, uh, translates the Bible from Hebrew and Greek into the Latin of everyday Romans, the Vulgate, that book for 1,400 years becomes the most important document of Western civilization. Um, and and the, the laws of the Western world, the moral values uh, of the Western world, uh, the thinking system suddenly come from this you know, Hebrew book that was virtually unknown. And, and all of this happens. Uh, why? How? How could, such, how could a man come and go and the world change like this if the wind, if you will, uh, of the Spirit of God was not poured out afterwards, which again is another sign. As I said, we may not see the wind that goes by, but we do see the trees and how they bow their heads, and that points to something. And so uh, all of these things perhaps are clues into the identity of this man. We're speaking with Ali Sedate, and tonight we're talking about the wonderful prophecies that surround Jesus' birth. This is our Christmas show. As I look outside the studio window, the snow is coming down like a blanket, folks. And we had some problems earlier tonight with Skype, but I think through a miracle, <laughs> I think they've been resolved for us all. Ali, I want to go back to the uh, to the Magi light, the star, the star of Bethlehem that we've been talking about. Now, apparently, you grew up in Iran. We that's true. Uh, yeah, that doesn't make you a bad person, that's for sure. I grew up in Montreal. <laughs> sure, makes me a Habs fan, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Um, apparently, you saw a bright light in Iran. What is yes. that about, my friend? I had gone to Iran to visit my father, and we decided to go to Shiraz, where he was from and all my family's from. I was born in Tehran, but my father prefers to drive at night, late at night, because there's no traffic. So we're driving uh, past midnight, and it's like a two-lane highway, one lane going south and another coming uh, north. It's the type of desert that's like Arizona. It's rocky uh, deserts, not sand dunes. We're driving towards Isfahan. I am sitting uh, in the front seat with my back to the door, facing the driver, who is his uh, wife, and, and she's driving, and he's sitting in the middle of the back seat, and I'm talking to them. Um, and suddenly she... Uh, points out uh, the window behind my head and makes these funny no noises like ah, 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 ah. and I'm so caught up in what I'm saying that I don't really pay attention uh, my dad looks at her and he says what's wrong Nima and she doesn't stop so he looks to, to what she's pointing to and next thing I know they're both doing this they're both sitting there and they're both going ah, ah, ah. they're pointing out the window behind me and so it kind of finally catches my attention. I sit properly in my seat, and I look out the window, and uh, just a few hundred feet to the right, like I can, it's very close, there is this large, large object. And if it was on the, it would be like a three, four-story building. It's very large. It's slowly coming down. I can see structure. I can see like divisions of structure on it. 
and it has green lights all around it to the point where it's glowing green, but I'm close enough that I can actually see the multitude of green lights. And this thing is slowly coming down, and we're driving forward. Eventually, it's perpendicular to my seat, and I'm looking at it straight. And I'm pretty confident that what I saw in the night desert, in the darkness of the night desert, was this uh, shaft that came out of the ground, out of the earth. And it was the same color as, as the night, the, the desert night. If I wasn't this close to it, uh, I, I would have probably not seen it. It was well camouflaged, so to speak. This thing then came directly on top of it, and it went whoosh, into the ground. And I was like, uh, in a complete state of shock. And she said, did you see that? Did you see that? And he said, I did, I did. And I just kind of sunk in my seat. Uh, well, yeah, in a state of shock. Uh, and we drove to Isfahan. We didn't talk about it much, uh, but it really had a profound effect on me when I came back to Toronto. You know, I, I realized there's this feeling where you really can't share this with people because it's ridiculous. And, and I, you know, for the first time, I actually felt what uh, I had read about uh, and I was going to read a lot about was this feeling of pressure that people have. They don't talk about this. And I started to look on these websites uh, to see what, what others were saying and uh, it was very well documented and, there, and, and now I could believe other people's uh, sightings because I was one of those people now. And so I started to look deeper into it and actually that's what led to UFOs, Angels and Gods, uh, which people can watch for free online. Um, this documentary that, that we made, and you know, we released it on Google Video in 2006, and it got 270,000 views and went viral, which was a lot of views for 2006, where audiovisual was still something that was new. And so this was kind of the sighting that I had in the deserts of Iran. Um, and uh, of course, uh, uh, I wasn't the first one, uh, and there, there's lots of interesting stories in the Bible that we can talk about if you're interested uh, that, that connect the UFOs. Uh, for instance, uh, one story that comes to my mind is uh, the prophet Daniel, um, when the king Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, uh, Babylon is a city that's about 60 miles south um, of Baghdad, of modern-day Baghdad, the capital of Iraq, when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon uh, comes and destroys the temple that Solomon had built in Jerusalem and destroys Jerusalem itself as a city and takes kind of uh, the Jewish people uh, as servants into his kingdom because the king of, uh, of Judah refused to pay his taxes uh, to, to Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, I mean, it's a complicated story of, of God's uh, prophecies and judgments and all that. But when they do make it to Babylon and they're tested for aptitude, Daniel is uh, seen as someone who shows intellectual uh, prowess and he's placed in the court of Babylon. And ironically, he's placed among the sages, which include the Magi. The Magi were one school uh, among the sages that made up you know, the Babylonian uh, school of sages. And, and the Magi had a political role. You know, they, they, they elected uh, subsequently in the Persian Empire. They had a very important role in, in choosing the kings. And that's why to this day, the name of the parliament in Iran is Majlis, which comes directly from Magi. And the English word magistrate comes also from Magi. And, 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 I, and these words point to the important role they had in politics, actually.
much later in his life, he's praying and fasting from sugar and wine. And suddenly an angel shows up uh, 21 days into his prayers. And the angel says, you know, we, I just want to make sure that you understand God was not displeased with you. He immediately dispatched me to respond to you. However, on the way here, the prince of Persia withstood me for 21 days, this angel says, to the point where I had to call for backup. You know, he calls for Michael, um, and, and he says, I had to call for Michael, who is your prince, the, 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 the angelic force uh, put in charge of the defense of Israel. And this is something that is very interesting that the Bible talks about, that we really had a huge breakthrough uh, in the 1990s uh, concerning this, which is that there are these powers behind the various empires, um, and, and they're all commonly called the gods, but there are these divine beings, which in Christian language we call the fallen angels, and they are behind the, the nations. And so looking back, I asked myself, how long have these guys been in, let's say, Persia in this case? And, and it's fascinating because we don't really connect these two dots together in our thinking, you know, UFOs are UFOs and angels are angels. Like, you know, how you connect these two together. And, and the reason we don't connect them together is simply because of the preconceived notions we have about uh, both of these categories. However, in the Bible, the angels come from someplace else other than Earth. They do fly in vehicles, actually, because the Bible talks about the Markava Elohim, the chariots of God, and which actually means... Uh, the vehicles of God, the only reason it was translated as chariot, Merkaba, is because until recently there was no other vehicle. So it was redundant. It was vehicle, chariot, same thing. Well, you know, you look at, for instance, the Hindu uh, tradition, the word for ch the chariots of the Hindu gods was Vimana. And it's interesting because to this day, in modern day Hindi, the word for aeroplane is Vimana. I want to come back to Jesus now, Jesus' birth. Yes. Was Jesus inseminated into a woman? Was the sperm inseminated into a woman in order to have alien DNA as part of Jesus' makeup? Or is Jesus right from God? Well, you know, if we are to believe what the Bible says, both in, in, in the prophecies concerning the Messiah and in the story of the conception, then, yes, Jesus is, is the God, and that the Holy Spirit, uh, you know, comes over uh, this woman, Miriam, and in her is conceived, uh, you know, uh, the human incarnation of God is formed. There is, no, there is no semen involved, but going back into the book of Genesis, uh, in chapter 3, um, God does say that he will put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And the seed of the woman, you know, in Greek would be the sperma. So it does, there's this idea of, you know, of a seed, um, of two seeds. Um, however, in the case of the Messiah, uh, we are to really truly understand this to, to be symbolic of, of, of saying, yes, the father uh, came and, and created something inside of this woman. But this was truly uh, a spiritual event where the Spirit of God you know, came over this woman and in her was then conceived. Now, could this be explained more scientifically in, in greater detail? Could we one day be able to explain the actual process of how one would go about to do such a thing? 
perhaps, yes, you know, in due time, we may even have a language to explain what happened here, but it is very different and foreign uh, to where we are in our understanding of how conception occurs. Do we have any inclination why Mary was chosen, specifically Mary as the mother, and why Joseph was chosen as, if you will, the father? You know, this is an interesting story. Everyone knew uh, in the Jewish culture that the Messiah was going to come through a woman, and this was great honor that, uh, you know, that many devout women uh, had in their hearts that perhaps they would be the one chosen to be the Messiah. Um, so first there's kind of a biological lineage that to notice that is very interesting that we see in the two lineages, one in the Gospel of Luke and one in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, since you, Mary, you mentioned Mary first, let's start with the Gospel of Luke. Now, Luke was a physician, and he was a Greek physician, and uh, in his gospel, we read the most amount of information about what Christ was feeling. But it is the humanity of Christ that is most accentuated in the gospel of Luke. And when you look into the lineage, and his biological lineage uh, has to go back to King David. This is one of the requirements of the Messiah. This is why uh, that lineage is even mentioned there. It's interesting because here is this, you know, genetic mystery where we are to understand there is a war also here where Satan, who wants to be the first principle in the cosmos, is competing with Adam, who, who, who has that destiny ahead of him and who can be saved through the Messiah. But one of the pieces of the genetic puzzle that is going to be the house inside of which the Messiah is going to be created and conceived, Mary or Miriam, is hidden in a bloodline that is outside of Israel, the Moabites. And suddenly, this whole event, bang, brings Ruth in, in the nick of time, and boom, she enters into the Messianic bloodline, right there, through this marriage with Boaz, confounding, perhaps, the enemy, uh, who, who may have been searching uh, for, for, you know, for the bloodline to destroy it before it happened, and then the story it reaches Solomon, and Solomon's descendancy is cursed. But the bloodline actually comes from Nathan, Solomon's brother, perhaps, you know, neglected, forgotten. Well, he's not really in that kingly line, but he's still the son of David, nonetheless. And he has the blood of David in him. And God's word you know, concerns the line of David. It doesn't say necessarily it'll be Solomon. Then you look at the Gospel of Matthew, and the Gospel of Matthew uh, really presents the Messiah above all as a king. And it is believed that it was the gospel written specifically to the Jewish people who were waiting for a king, the Messiah, the anointed one. And the gospel of Matthew, well, Matthew himself was a Levi uh, from, you know, a priest. Um, but he hated, or something had happened where he was not satisfied with the temple and he had left Jerusalem and gone as far north as he possibly could in Galilee and even there, where Herod's jurisdiction ended and his brother Philip's jurisdiction began, there was a tax office. And each time you wanted to cross, uh, you had to pay taxes. And who was there collecting these taxes? Matthew. And there happened to be a very charismatic teacher whose words were quite powerful around there in Capernaum, which is really walking distance of the tax office, who also happened to often go to the other side of the little lake of Galilee and walk among the villages that were there and teach, and each time him and his disciples had to cross, well, they had to pay taxes to Matthew. And so 
Matthew perhaps might have walked down to the great synagogue of Capernaum and listened to the sermon. Perhaps he would have been sitting there on a Mount of Olives. And because as a tax collector, uh, he had to learn shorthand. It's believed that that's why he was able to record the Sermon on the Mount in such great detail, uh, because he was able to, to, to record his shorthand. And so Matthew, who's focusing on the royal, uh, the, the kingship of, of this character, the Messiah, he gives us the legal lineage, which, again, goes back to King David, but this time through uh, Solomon. And this is Joseph's line. And so we see that he's also, you know, uh, legally, you know, the son of King David. The choice of Joseph and Mary has definitely to do with their bloodline and the relationship that each has with David. Uh, and the prophecies of the Messiah would come from David. There is these two connections, the legal and the biological, and they're recorded in these two Gospels. And ironically, the theme of the Gospels, one focuses on his kingship, the other on its humanity. Um, and by the way, the two other Gospels, the Gospel of Mark doesn't have a, um, a lineage because it focuses on the Messiah being a servant, the suffering servant, the one who would offer his life. And finally, the Gospel of John focuses on his divinity. And that's why it begins by saying that this was God who became a man, that it gives a divine lineage. And these four books together click to form the complete picture of the one who was a man, a servant, a king, and the incarnation of God. Now, we have learned also now a considerable amount about uh, Nazareth and uh, Joseph and Mary's immediate circumstances uh, inside of their culture. Um, and this is really like kind of like hot off the press type of thing. I mean, it's not hot or hot off the press, but it's uh, something that really most people are not aware of. Uh, it's... Um, Thanks to this, uh, I believe he's a Benedictine monk who, who lives in Israel, has been living in Israel for since the 80s, and he loves uh, to go to archaeological sites uh, that have to do with the Bible. And it's interesting because the spelling changes everything. The spelling is Nazareth. Now, why is that important? Well, in the prophecies of Isaiah concerning the Messiah, it says that he would be the offshoot of stump of Jesse. So if you look at like an olive tree, and you see lots of them in Israel, at the very base of the olive tree, there will be a little shoot that comes out of the stump. It would be like the beginnings of a tree if you were to grow, or, the, or at least a branch. And the word in Hebrew is netzer, netzer. And it means the offshoot. And, and the Messiah is from then on in the Bible, in, in several places, called the branch, which is netzer. That's the Hebrew word for it, the branch. And he's mentioned in the book of Revelation, he presents himself as the Netzer, David, and the offshoots. So right there, at the time of Isaiah, about 700 years before the Messiah, these people who were from the tribe of Judah, uh, who was the which was the tribe of David, and specifically from, from his family, uh, from the family of Jesse, when they heard Isaiah say that one day the Messiah would come specifically for them, they took this to heart. They, they, they said, oh, wow, this is very important. And they kind of formed a group, and they called themselves the Netzerites, uh, those who, uh, who, one of them would one day become the Netzer, this branch. And they were carried, like, like all the other Judeans, into the Babylonian exile, and they were there until the Persian king Cyrus came and freed them. And 
you know, we imagine that all the Jews suddenly came back to Israel. Actually, no, many of them stayed in the Persian Empire. Uh, in fact, when you look all the way to the 1979 Islamic Revolution, the majority of Middle Eastern Jewry lived in Iran. Over 100,000 Jewish people lived in Iran, and most of them lived in Shiraz, which was uh, where the uh, main capitals of the Persian Empire. But there was kind of this gradual immigration back to Israel. And Galilee in the north was really a place where a lot of Gentiles lived. And Herod, who was given you know, jurisdiction over this Judean tribe, even though he himself was not Jewish, he was Edomite. He was come from modern-day Jordan. Uh, that's why, you know, when the Magi said to him, where is he who was born king of the Jews? That was a very kind of pointed statement in his mind because he represented the Roman Empire. He was not Jewish, and he had you know, work his way up into statecraft, which was kind of what he loved. And suddenly these representatives of a competing empire, the Parthian Empire, and the, Israel was kind of a border country between the two, and they had changed hands several times. In fact, uh, you know, um, around 35, 37 B.C., it had shifted back into the Roman world. Uh, we don't know how many Magi there were. Uh, the Bible doesn't give us the numbers. Uh, some of the most ancient records we have say there was 12 of them, and they did travel with armed guards and oriental pump. And they are these very important uh, people who choose kings. And they, they, they were here in the Babylonian uh, Empire. They became a very important integrated part of the Persian uh, power structure, uh, in fact, it was agreed that the religion of the Persian Empire would come from the Magi. And, you know, there are many great Persian kings who were chosen because of, of the Magi selecting them. And these guys, who are kingmakers of a competing empire, walk into this borderland, which keeps flipping sides. They go to the chosen leader of this competing empire, the Roman Empire, and they say to him, where is he who was born king of the Jews? Herod saw it immediately as a political challenge to his position. And, and wow, these guys have come, they want to reclaim this piece of land back into the Parthian Empire, and they want to put their own guy on the throne of Judea. That, that's, I think, Herod was seeing it. But to kind of digress, to come back to, to, to the story here of um, the, the, the Joseph uh, and Mary and their relationship to the Netzarites. So this group of Judeans reads the prophecy of Isaiah, considers themselves to be one of, the, well, from them the branch will come, so they call themselves the Netzarites. They are part of the Judean exiles that go to Babylon and then Persia. And as people, as Jewish people begin gradually to immigrate back into Israel proper, Herod wants to populate the north. Herod the Great wants to populate the north, or like Galilee, where a lot of Gentiles live, with as many Judeans as he can. So he's offering land. And, he's, and the Nazarites are offered a little village up there. And when they go, they call the village Netzer, which means a branch, the offshoot, because they happen to be this group of people who consider themselves to be the group from whom the Messiah is to come according to Isaiah's prophecy, they are the Nazarites. They are the offshoots. So when we say Nazareth, it's not like potato, potato. It actually obscures all of this meaning, which has come to life very recently. That, wow, so this was the village of the Nazarites because Netzer means offshoot or branch, which was one of the titles of Messiah. And so what's interesting is that Joseph, 
was one of these guys. And that's why he took his bride to live there. He was a Netzarite. And so that element of the story now comes to life. We now understand who Joseph was. And, you know, it was a very tiny village, uh, and it was near a stone quarry, uh, and there was, you know, a great city being built next door from the stones that were being brought from the quarry, and he was working. He was working with stone and wood. And when he gets his bride, they move to Netzer, because that's where the Netzerites live. And when Jesus goes into the synagogue there, and he right. says something to the fact that, you know, uh, you know, I am. I have come from you. It's me. It's I am the one. You're all we, one of us would be the next error. Here I am. I am the one. And they reject him because they were expecting him to empower them with authority. But he was going off to to the Sea of Galilee and working with other people, fishermen. So this explains to me, anyways, why we say Jesus of Nazareth and not Jesus of exactly. Bethlehem. Because that was always curious to me. Here's this guy born in Bethlehem, and we're always saying Jesus of Nazareth. So now I know where Nazareth comes into it. Ali, yeah. um, the three magi we were talking about before, Persians, from the Persian Empire. Now, yeah. they're, they're yeah. not Jewish, and yet they know, no. they declare that Jesus is king. Is this a gift yes. that God gives to the Persian people because of Cyrus's yeah. great gift to the Jews of releasing them? Right. Yes, that's an interesting point that you've made. I've never really thought about that connection. Osiris himself was chosen by God before he was born to carry this will. There are seven empires that contend with Israel from the time of Abraham to the modern day. And uh, the Persian Empire is the only one that is used by God not to suppress the Jewish people, but to restore them. It has this unique role among the empires, and it's the Achaemenian, or as the Persians say, Hachamanishi, dynasty that begins with Cyrus, the Achaemenian. Why the, the Magi were chosen? Well, the Magi were very famous people. Everyone in the ancient world knew who the Magi were and the role, the important role they had. Everyone was aware of the Parthian Empire. There were many religions from the Parthian Empire in the Roman world. It, it, they were not some unknown you know, people. Um, so if you were now living at the time of the Messiah, and the Romans had just come from a foreign place and had come on the world stage new, and you wanted to say, okay, all the kings of the earth, even those who are the greatest king makers of this world, will bow to the king of kings, will bow to this one who's destined to become the ruler of all nations. Well, there was no greater symbol than the Magi who were here as far back as the book of Jeremiah, where they're mentioned for the first time. They're here in the Babylonian period. They're here in the Persian period. They're here in the Greek period. They're here in the Roman period. They are truly a consistent symbol of, of kingmakers. And they come and, at the feet of this king. And this ties into the greater theme that, the, that he will be the king of kings, and even kings will bow to him. And so it points to the submission of the world order to the coming Messiah and the um, ideal kingdom, the righteous kingdom that he will usher in at, at, at what we believe at his second coming. Uh, now is the time of the inauguration where he's being introduced to the Gentiles. He's been given as a light to the nations. And all nations you know, who were cast out of the Tower of Babel are being brought back into fellowship with the living God, which is one of the roles of the Messiah, uh, was to do that. 
because, uh, you know, there are three things that happen in the Old Testament that are the foundation of the fallen world. Uh, there is um, the story of the Garden of Eden and the judgment of death. This is countered by the atonement that comes through the Messiah. Then there's the story of the casting out um, of the nations from the presence of God of the Tower of Babel. But the very next chapter, we have the story of Abraham, which is the means through which God is going to restore the nations back to himself. And that is, again, one of the roles of the Messiah. You know, he atones for the sin uh, and the judgment of death is removed. And then there's a third and very controversial event that begins uh, in the days leading to the flood, where apparently these fallen angels, the Benai Elohim, the sons of God, land on Mount Hermon, which is a ski resort today, and they uh, begin to genetically, you know, mix themselves through, through relations with the daughters of Adam, and they give birth to the Nephilim. And, and our documentary really does a good job, I think, of explaining this, especially looking into the modern-day abduction phenomenon and how it brings to life these ancient stories of the Titans. This creates a kind of a genetic mutation in the human world where we will be given a new body. And that's what the resurrected body of the Messiah points to, uh, the undoing of this genetic uh, modification. The Messiah will also restore us, even Goliath who fights with David was a descendant of the Nephilim, and we see that our bloodline continue. <laughs> now we were aware when Jesus was born. We say December 25th, 0000, according to the Christian calendar. Uh, apparently he was born right. in June. Most people have him born in June, and the whole reason, folks, for the, uh, the move to December 25th, because it was the Festival of Lights, a pagan festival, and um, they wanted to try and keep in try and keep people to the Christian faith. So they said, let's just move it there. We're not really sure when he was born, so we're going to move it to December 25th. Does that shift in time actually matter? Is there something more relevant to Jesus being born? Some people say June the 6th rather than December 25th. Are we well, the, off on the That's an interesting question. Uh, well, I'm sure it matters. Uh, you know, there's the precision. Uh, now, on, on the other hand, I could say, well, if it really mattered supremely, God would have made it very clear. Um, when the shepherds come in the field, well, there's no way they would have come in December because there would be frost, there would be no grazing happening. The last time the shepherds, you know, around October would be kind of the, the furthest you could go with the story of the shepherds in the field in Bethlehem. Um, it's possible that... Um, um, he was conceived in December, um, and then nine months later he was born. Um, you know, and that that kind of would put him around around the, the fall. Uh, it's possible that he was born uh, on one one of the appointed days uh, in God's calendar, like the Feast of Tabernacle, which represents God being with us. Uh, some say, well, maybe Hanukkah, which is the, which is this miracle that happened. And, and he was a miracle. Perhaps Hanukkah, you know, was, was another appointed day. Um, definitely it wasn't December and it wasn't December 25th. You're right. No, I was um, just yeah. always curious about that. The other thing I was going to ask you is, um, when we look at the Bible, should we look at it literally or should we look at it metaphysically, symbolically? Uh, well, or all three both. of the above. The Bible, yes, all three of the above. The Bible is a literal story of real people in real places doing real things. It presents itself that way. We have to look at it that way to start with. It makes use of similes and allegories and metaphors 
and figures of speech to tell its literal story. You know, if it says like, you know, that the enemies of David will eat the dust at its feet, it doesn't mean they're going to like gallop and then get on their and then start eating the dust at their feet. It means they'll be utterly humbled, you know, like the story of the serpent who, who we are told will be utterly humbled, uh, that he will crawl, you know, on the ground uh, lower than any beast. Well, obviously Satan is not a snake. He, he's a being of, you know, galactic prowess and incredible knowledge as far as how God's creation operates. However, we are told through the story he will be humbled um, like, like a crawling serpent. So, so the Bible uses allegories and metaphors uh, and, and symbolism uh, and figures of speech to tell a literal story. And that's very important to understand that once you start to change the literal story using these literary devices, once you try to rewrite the story, uh, then you're kind of off. You have to understand that all of these devices are here to reinforce the literal story that is being told. Um, and in order to understand the literal story, well, then you do have to look into history and archaeology and, and begin to uh, kind of come out, the whole, uh, out of the whole idea of religion, you know. This is not just a religion. This is actually the story of us. There is a very famous Kingstonian uh, right here in Kingston. He just won the Nobel Prize for Physics and Dark Matter. Yes. And wow. I went to see a lecture. He get yeah, he's going to be on the show, folks. No worries there, but in the springtime. Um, we were talking about dark matter, the Big Bang, and I said everything that comes from the Big Bang is, is essentially, intrinsically connected. It has to be. Does this very scenario that we've been talking about with Jesus, is it possible that other worlds out there that are populated with aliens, is it possible that they have the same type of scenario where the Son of Man, the Son of God, God would be born amongst them as well? Or is there only one Messiah? Uh, well, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you know, the beyond the scope of, of my... But the universe. Well, um, Just an I, don't I don't know. No uh, worries. That's a fair yes, answer. Fact, I, I didn't want to put you on the uh, the spot. We're just talking like that. <laughs> and um, I was going to get your opinion of that. That's the all. The story of the Messiah is a very unique story because we are to understand that the, the God of the universe uh, will continue to rule the universe in this clothing, in this human clothing. And that Adam's race uh, was meant for this destiny. And that the earth is the birthplace, the incubation chamber of the immortal children of God who have a role to play as managers and servants to the creation as a whole with the Son of God at the helm as a Judean, as a one of us. And so that identity gives him a very unique and eternal status among the worlds. Now, how was the universe set up? Because the word the Bible calls Shemaim and it creates three divisions that we know of. Um, the third Shemaim, and it even talks about the Shemaim of the Shemaim, the heavens of the heavens. How exactly is life set up in the universe? What other places are there? How does it all connect together? Again, these are things we have to live with the mystery uh, of it all because we really don't know. All the building blocks. Nope, put that, together. And that's fair enough. Now, is. Has Jesus? We know Jesus is making a second coming. In your opinion, as I think we may be yes. in the end times, has he been born, reborn yet? 
He's not going to be reborn. He was taken away again in a cloud. And it's interesting, these clouds that, that, that God and angels fly on. And, and, and you look at, again, watch our documentary, UFOs, Angels, and Gods. Very controversial, but interesting. And we talk about the ascension of the Messiah. And he's going to return with an armada. We are told that in the Bible, he's going to come back with an army. And there's going to be a war. And you think, well, how is it that there's going to be a war with God unless the world perceives the entire event through a new lens? And, of course, we suggest that part of the deception from the enemy is to rebrand God's angels as aliens returning. And that's what causes the war between the bad aliens who are here, who are the the fallen angels, they're not aliens, but they will present themselves as the good aliens, as the saviors of the earth. And it's interesting that the number one paradigm of the modern-day UFO phenomenon is that the aliens have come to rescue us from all our evil ways and help us grow up and usher into the galactic community in a peaceful way. And, of course, this is the pseudo-Messiah, the one who tries to present himself instead of the Messiah. And when the Messiah and his armies return, they may be perceived as an invading alien force under the lie and propaganda of the fallen angels, our perceptions, and so the war becomes not possible. So he is not going to be reborn. He is already born. He is ascended okay. to the right hand of God, and he's going to be sent back with an army We've to rescue us a, like God rescued the Jews. We've only got a minute left, less than a minute. Why should we celebrate the birth of Jesus? Why should we it's be joyous? It's the beginning of the story that leads to Easter, which is really the highlight, actually. Uh, where we'll be, you know, we are saved in the sense from, from, from our sins, from the judgment of death, and we're given a new body with the resurrection. It is the story of salvation. It is a story of a new rejuvenated spiritual life and a place in the coming kingdom because of who we are and our past history that has led us to need this. And there is the music, my friend. Thank you so much, Ali Sedatens. Been on our show tonight, folks, talking about biblical prophecy, the birth of Jesus. I hope you enjoyed our Christmas show. www.nightfrightshow.com. There you will find a link to Ali's free um, great website where you can watch his documentary and uh, all kinds of great information there. Ali, I'd like you to come back a few weeks before Eastern so much. I'm Brian Holland from Night Friday. Have a beautiful evening. See you all later. Merry Christmas, everybody. Inside the Oval Office to Davy Plaza. First person witness accounts. Order yours right now. Nightfrightshow.com.